Greetings. Welcome to Wikisurfer, a kind of experiment in podcast storytelling. Basically, the format is this. Two guys, Brandon Phibbs and Kyle Sullivan, will each pick a starting topic on Wikipedia, crack it open, and see what hides inside. Moving purely on curiosity, hopping from hyperlink to hyperlink, they pick the best, weirdest, most wonderful stories possible. Happy surfing! Listeners, welcome to Wikisurfer's special holiday episode. Since we know you are busy spending quality time with your families, we've made this one short and sweet. Since origin stories are all the rage these days, Kyle, I decided to try my hand at one. For Santa Claus. We start, as all good origin stories do, at the very beginning. In this case, with St. Nicholas. The evolution of Santa Claus. I should mention on the outset that nothing I am about to tell you can be corroborated by historical sources. Nicholas is not mentioned in any accounts written by contemporary historians. If he wrote anything, those documents are lost. Merry Christmas! The first we learn of a man named St. Nicholas is centuries after his death, at which time a sort of cult had already formed around him, and his story had obviously undergone lavish embellishments. According to tradition, Nicholas was born in 270 AD in the Roman port city of Patra in southern Turkey to a family of Greek Christians. When he became old enough, his uncle, the bishop of a nearby city, ordained him as a priest. Nicholas's parents died not long after that, leaving him with a sizable fortune. Rather than spend it on himself, Nicholas embarked on his first great act of benevolence. He heard about a poor man with three daughters. Unable to provide them with a dowry, the young women were doomed to remain unmarried and likely have to turn to prostitution to support themselves. Over three consecutive nights, Nicholas visited their house, tossing purses full of gold coins through their window. Later, Nicholas visited Egypt and the Holy Land, On the way, a massive storm rose up and threatened to destroy the vessel. Just like Jesus in the Gospels, Nicholas rebuked the storm. And the weather dissipated. Because of this, he became the patron saint of sailors. Even today, he's the patron saint of Greece and particularly the Greek Navy. When Nicholas returned home, he stopped by his uncle's church to pray. But his uncle had died, and it was declared that the first priest through the door would be made the new bishop. Suddenly, Nicholas had a new job. But it wasn't all glamorous. Nicholas was soon imprisoned and tortured by Emperor Diocletian, who was intent on eliminating Christianity in the Roman Empire. Diocletian implemented the largest and bloodiest Christian persecution in Rome's history. Thousands of Christians were murdered, their churches burned, and their sacred texts destroyed. Diocletian failed, of course, and his successor, Constantine, made Christianity the empire's preferred religion. And he also released Nicholas from prison. (laughs) 
Soon thereafter, Nicholas discovered that three innocent men were about to be executed for a crime they didn't commit. He unarmed the executioner and set them free. Well, that's the simplest version of the story. Others include a far larger narrative with violent rebellion, looting, bribery, and corruption that includes Nicholas speaking to people through their dreams. In 325 AD, Nicholas was said to have attended the first Council of Nicaea, at which the bishops were working out Christianity's early dogma. There, Nicholas supposedly signed the newly written Nicene Creed, though many historians believe his name was added long after the fact. To explain this, a story was put forward more than a thousand years later, in which Nicholas supposedly lost his temper and slapped a bishop with whom he had a theological disagreement. As punishment, he was defrocked. Later versions of this legend embellish it further still. Nicholas punched the heretic, was thrown in prison, and was visited in his cell by Christ and the Virgin Mary, who set him free and reinstated him. Once again, Nicholas returned home to continue his life as a gift-giving do-gooder, going around and dropping coins into empty shoes wherever he came across them. And then there was the time, during a devastating famine, when a butcher lured three small children into his house, killed them, and placed their bodies in a container to cure. He intended to sell their flesh as pork. <laughs> However, Nicholas was on to him and resurrected the pickled children. <laughs> After he died, Nicholas's remains were shuffled about. In 1071, as the Byzantine Empire was under siege from the Turks, Nicholas's skeleton was sent to the seaside town of Bari in southern Italy where the Pope had a church built just to hold them. Today, Eastern Orthodox Christians, as well as the Turks, regard the removal of Nicholas's bones as blatant theft. And as recently as 2009, have formally demanded that the Italian government return them. Other bone fragments are housed in churches across Europe, Russia, and even the United States. Today, Nicholas is regarded as a saint. Iconographically, he's depicted as an elderly man with a white beard and a balding head and celebrated as a gift giver throughout Europe. Sound familiar? Inspired by his benevolence, medieval nuns would leave baskets of food and clothes at the doors of the needy during the month of December. Likewise, sailors would celebrate St. Nicholas's life with a church service before stopping to buy gifts for their children on the way home. So how did we get from St. Nicholas, a Greek bishop living in Turkey, to Santa Claus, a jolly elf living in the North Pole with flying reindeer? Well. It all starts with Martin Luther, you know the guy, the monk, priest, and professor, who is convinced that the Catholic Church had not only become hopelessly corrupt, but also polluted Christianity with cumbersome theological trappings. He spearheaded the Reformation, and it is because of Luther that Christendom is now separated into Catholics and Protestants. Don't worry, this isn't a story about Luther, but he plays an important part in our story because he deeply disapproved of the veneration of saints, 
so much so that he worked to have their celebrations banned. He specifically called the celebration around St. Nicholas a childish thing. As a reaction to this condemnation, celebrations in honor of St. Nicholas went underground. Well, sort of. On December 6th, the date established as St. Nicholas's Day, the Dutch began celebrating Sinterklaas, a shortened derivation of St. Nicholas. Ho, ho, ho! Sinterklaas was depicted as an old man with a long white beard, dressed in a red cape, holding a shepherd's staff and a large book in which he had written down which children had been good and which had been naughty over the previous year. According to the tradition, Sinterklaas would literally fly into town on a white horse, delivering candies and fruit to children through their chimneys. To this day, Sinterklaas is still so popular in the Netherlands and Belgium that Santa Claus is not commonly seen. But it's not enough to say that the Dutch invented Sinterklaas as a stand-in for St. Nicholas so that they could continue to honor him in the face of Protestant opposition. Where did some of the more fanciful ideas behind Sinterklaas come from? The, the flying horses and the books keeping tabs on kids? Some historians have drawn parallels between Sinterklaas and Odin the Norse god worshipped in northern and western Europe prior to Christianization. He too rode a white eight-hooved steed named Slepnir through the sky. Odin, who is depicted with a long white beard, was celebrated during the midwinter pagan celebration of Yule, in which he visited his people with gifts and was accompanied by black ravens who would perch near the holes in ancient roofs to allow fire smoke to escape and report back to their master which humans were being good and which were doing evil. Luther, as you might imagine, was not fooled by Sinterklaas, but he found some value in the celebration, particularly giving gifts to kids who were obedient folded their clothes properly, and, of course, prayed diligently. He suggested that those children who did not pray should be given horse droppings. He moved the date for giving presents from December 6th to Christmas Eve, a holiday the Christians chose to replace all the concurrent winter pagan festivals, and is even said to have invented the Christmas tree, supplanting the endemic Viking and Saxon tree worship with a reminder in the house of a tree that points to heaven. Luther also replaced the figure of Sinterklaas with the Christ Kindle. The Christ Kindle is something of a hybrid between the newborn Christ child and a winged sprite. Very few people remember the Christ Kindle today, but its name lives on, albeit in corrupted English. Chris Kringle. Sinterklaas was not the only avatar for St. Nicholas. Others include the Finnish Julpuki, the French Pierre Noël, the German Jolnir and Lagbonar, and of course, Father Christmas, an English personification during the 16th century, who was pictured as a large, genial man in a green robe lined with fur. Think the ghost of Christmas present in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I am the spirit of Christmas present. Look upon me. You've never seen the light of me before, have you? Never. 
Each of these men embodied physical and behavioral aspects of the character we now know as Santa Claus. So when did Santa Claus finally come into his own? And how did he get his name? Before I go there, I want to do a quick side surf to something too fun and too weird to ignore. Namely, these proto-Santa's dark helpers. And no, I'm not talking about elves. These are characters who exist to punish children who misbehave. For the French, Lapierre Foutard was a sinister figure, dressed in black, who accompanied St. Nicholas wherever he went, and whose job it was to spank children who behaved badly. But when it comes to this motley crew, Pierre is practically angelic. In Germany, St. Nicholas's most common companion was servant Rupert. Rupert would go around asking young children if they could properly recite their prayers. Those that could got sweet treats. Those that could not, Rupert beat with a rod or tossed them into a sack to be carried away into the Black Forest, where they would either be drowned in the river or eaten by Rupert himself. Interestingly, Rupert was a common name for the devil in Germany at this time. If you are a fan of David Sedaris, you probably know where I'm going next. For the Dutch, Sinterklaas had a mischievous companion in colorful Moorish dress, known as Zwarte Piet, or Black Piet. Like servant Rupert, he would beat or kidnap children who were naughty. Traditionally, Black Pete's face is said to be black because he is a Spanish Moor. And so, each December, people in the Netherlands go around in blackface, which has obviously led many to deem the character horribly racist. But the most frightening of them all is a character recently made popular in several films, Krumpus. A terrifying monster inhabiting much of Eastern Europe. Krumpus survived from local Alpine traditions and predates Christianity. He is most often portrayed as a hairy, horned devil, walking on cloven hooves and dressed in rags. His mouth is fanged and holds a long, pointed tongue that lolls out like a dog's. He's something straight out of kids' nightmares. And if said kids are lucky, all he does is gift you coal and bundles of birch branches. If you are not, he attacks you with heavy chains. In the 1800s, Europeans loved to exchange Krumpus greeting cards with images of the devil torturing children and overpowering buxom women. Okay, back to our main story. Any They Might Be Giants fans know that Istanbul is the name for the former city of Constantinople. Likewise, New York City began its life as the Dutch colonial town New Amsterdam. It wasn't called New York until after the British decided they liked the location so much that they took it by force. During the American Revolution, it said the inhabitants of New York revived their past Sinterklaas traditions. English newspapers of the era described Dutch families celebrating the feast, which they pronounced as Santa Claus. Ho, ho, ho. The family of John Pintard, an early American merchant, 
observed the Feast of St. Nicholas and published a pamphlet in 1810 proposing that New York City adopt St. Nicholas as its patron saint. Around the same time, the American short story writer, essayist, and historian Washington Irving, best known as the author of Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, also wrote a satirical history of New York in which he included a dream sequence in which St. Nicholas soared high over the trees in a flying wagon. It's not hard to see why the trappings of Santa Claus became a sleigh, since that is the way one got around New York in the winter. After this, the name Santa Claus began popping up in diaries, letters, and books of the early 1800s. One of the most important keystones in the jolly old elf's origin story was put into place by Reverend Clement Clark Moore, an Episcopal minister who, in 1822, wrote a poem for his three daughters entitled, An Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas. You know it better as The Night Before Christmas. Was the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The poem has all the characteristics we now associate with Santa. A sleigh, flying reindeer, chimneys as the means of entry into a home, presents for children. Though, interestingly, the author alludes to them all being miniaturized. It was here that the reindeer first got their names, too. Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donner, and Blitzen. Rudolph, arguably the most popular of Santa's steeds, wasn't invented until 1939 by Robert May, a copywriter who worked for the now-defunct Montgomery Ward department store. May wrote the poem as a way to bring traffic through the door. He sold millions of copies and later inspired the popular song and animated special. In 1881, political cartoonist Thomas Nast illustrated Moore's poem in Harper's Weekly, America's oldest continually published magazine. And his depiction of Santa as a fat, cheerful man with a white beard and a red suit clutching a sack of toys immediately cemented a cultural icon. He was even responsible for creating Santa's North Pole workshop, as well as Mrs. Claus. Santa's image was further cemented in 1930, when Coca-Cola began using him in their advertising. The campaign was so successful, in fact, that to this day, many people believe Coke invented the modern look of Santa, based on their red and white color scheme. Simultaneously, department stores began hiring actors to play Santa during the holidays, the most famous being Macy's in New York City. Children getting pictures taken with Santa goes back to at least 1918. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> and that catches us up to modern times. Not a lot has changed in the past three quarters of a century or so. Santa has uh, settled into a bit of a routine. It makes you wonder, however, what the next leap will be. How will Santa change in the 21st century? We've already seen movies that try to explain his magical powers with, well, science fiction. Santa works his magic via technology that allows him to slow down time, travel at the speed of light, or open interdimensional rifts. The Santa Claus of the future may metamorphose into something weirder and more wonderful than we could ever imagine. But whomever Santa becomes in the distant future, his DNA will remain a treasure trove of clear transitional species, allowing us to chart his evolution from a first century Greek bishop helping the poor to a jolly fat man giving gifts to virtuous children and everything in between. 
Welcome to the credits. Special thank you goes to Sam Fraser Jr., who had the honor of being punched in the face by St. Nick in our story. And a special thank you goes out to Katie Boyer. Hey, that's me. American Crow Call, recorded by Steve Hampton via Xenocanto.org. Twas the Night Before Christmas, recorded by Annie Coleman for LibriVox.org. Additional music, Universiki Te Expectant, performed by Shola Antiqua and recorded by Mike Brubaker 12. That's it. Thanks for listening.